you think about the average American versus an athlete, my peak earning years were from 18 to 25 years old. And if I made big financial mistakes, then there was no going back to do it over again. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Jacob Turner, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, Matt. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, we were just talking before uh, we started recording here. I'm super stoked about this conversation. I mean, I love all the conversations we have because I get to talk with interesting people. And this one's really kind of hits close to home for me. And given you solved for something that I always wanted to solve for when I first got in the industry, growing up a baseball player and an avid sports fan, I wanted to be like, I wanted to serve sports athletes. I want to serve athletes. I wanted to be in that realm. And uh, yeah. and and you've done it. So I'm really kind of, I'm, I'm stoked to kind of go down that path of how you've done it and how you approached it. And I think having someone that's played the game, been in the league, and then serving them is the right approach to do. So I'm excited to do that and kind of get into things with you because I'm very, uh, I admire what you've done. But before we do that and we talk about kind of some of the differences between athletes and that transition and how we can relate it to retirees and how do we serve them, I want to start just kind of with getting to know you a little bit. So I know you played in the bigs. I'm curious, you you actually lived out a lot of kids' dreams by playing in the big leagues, but what did, you know, I always like to start this by saying, you know, what did the 13-year-old Jacob Turner want to be? Was it to be a financial advisor to athletes? Or did you live your dream of being an athlete and being a baseball player? But what did the 13-year-old want to be? Well, I'll start with a story. I can remember in carpool, this is probably seventh grade, so around 13, seventh grade, the the individual that took us to carpool, and she's carpooling us in one day, and she turns around and she asks us, I think there was about six of us in the car, what do you want to be when you grow up? So everybody goes around and says what they want to be when they grow up, and I say, I want to be a professional baseball player. I'll never forget her reaction. She turned around and she looked right at me and she was like, well, Jacob, you need to pick something a little bit more realistic. And look, <laughs> as a 13 year old, you don't know what's realistic and what's not, but that was what I always wanted to be. And, you know, fortunately I had a lot of God given ability and there was a lot of things that fell my way to allow me to live out that dream. I, I think that's incredible. You know, who, you know, we, we all know the odds, even as kids, we're still naive, but we still understand that it's really a difficult thing. But then to have the parent tell us like, Hey, let's, why don't you want to be a firefighter? Like something yeah. you can actually do, right? Like, come on, talk about smashing dreams. Well, well, talk to us about the journey, right? Like talk to us about your process. I think it's always interesting to talk to athletes because it is something that we, we, I mean, a lot of us aspire boys, girls, young kids looking up to athletes. And so I'm curious on your journey from, you know, that, that moment in the car and carpool, when they said, when the carpool driver said, you can't do it, fix something more realistic to today, right? Walk us through that journey of kind of baseball, what led you into finance ultimately? And then what led you to kind of start your own firm as well? Yeah. I mean, on the baseball side, I grew up with two brothers and my parents were extremely supportive of us playing sports and sports was really all we ever did. When the time we came home from school, it was, we played baseball and we played hockey. So those were the two things that we did. We watched sports center on repeat when we originally got cable TV, but sports were living and breathing what we did. So it was kind of a natural progression with the I had the talent. I put the work in. I had the support system around me. I ended up getting drafted as an 18-year-old kid, played for 11 years of professional baseball. I'm extremely grateful for the opportunities I had, the lessons I learned along the way. And, and much to your point, Matt, a lot of those lessons I learned along the way and those experiences led me to, one, having a love around personal finance, and two, helping to educate other people that are in a similar situation. So when I got done playing baseball, it was, okay, well, how can I use these skills that I now have that are in this little bit of a unique skill set to help the next generation of guys? 
I've also loved being an entrepreneur. I love the, the thought and idea of starting my own business and growing it from something to something bigger. And that's really what led us to starting Moment uh, about three years ago now. I love that. And you know, I, I want to go on a tangent for a second because I'm just really curious about it. I've seen a lot of guys do this. You went over and played in South Korea for a little bit. Uh, yep. Talk to me about that experience. So you lived in South Korea for how long? Tell me about the cultural differences, the the just the... You know, going from, I mean, Missouri or Detroit or Washington, wherever you went from there to South Korea seems like a pretty drastic transition. Tell me about that. I'm curious there. Well, if you think it was a drastic transition for me, imagine me sitting in the waiting room with my wife about to give birth to our third child. And I tell her that I just talked to my agent and we're going to sign with a team in South Korea. <laughs> and let me, let me preface this by saying, Matt, the discussions we had had up to this point was like, right before bed for five minutes, I think there might be an opportunity there. And the way these teams work in Korea is it's very much a cultural thing. They offer you and they expect to hear something back from you in 24 to 48 hours. If they don't, they're moving on. So that was how our journey started. I went from St. Louis, Missouri to South Korea, not just, not Seoul, South Korea, which is the capital, which is very much Americanized. We lived in a city called Gwangju, South Korea. And the way I would describe it from a comparison standpoint is if you took somebody from South Korea and you moved them to the United States and they thought they were going to New York City and they ended up in Detroit. <laughs> so Guangzhou is very much a, it's a manufacturing town. It's the, the headquarters of Kia Motors. So just like Detroit's the headquarters of Ford and GM, it's a hardworking town, but there's not a ton of people that speak English there. And it's what I would call true Korea. So it was a culture shock moment when I first got there because I really didn't know what I was getting into. I knew it was a good baseball opportunity, but I didn't understand all the other facets of it. But we had a great time. It it opened our eyes to the rest of the world. It made us appreciate some of the things that we take for granted here in the United States. And frankly, from a baseball standpoint, it was a ton of fun. I love that. And so you took your newborn and your two other kids and just flew kind of like on a nice little jet over to South Korea, which from St. Louis, Missouri, seems like it's like a four-day yep. trip, it would seem like. I can't even imagine. So a newborn, you just flew over to South Korea and they kind of just lived there for a year. Was it a year or two years over there? Yeah, so I spent a year over there. I was there for about 10 months. My wife and kids were there for about half that time, so about five months out of the year. They flew over on a 15-hour flight. I joked that the team was willing to pay for business class seats for all of them. So my my newborn had her own business class seat. So I can imagine the looks I'm sure my wife was getting as people were walking past her thinking that I can't believe you paid $4,000 or whatever it was for this business class seat for the newborn. But it was an interesting experience nonetheless. Your wife is a saint to fly 15 hours with three kids, yep. one of them being a newborn. I mean, she is an absolute saint. So give her all my props uh, ever, forever on that side. But shifting gears, you know, I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, you retired from the game and you transitioned to helping the next generation of, le of big leaguers and, and athletes in general with their finances. What was, when you were in the game and you were around the players, what was the challenge that they faced when it came to financial decisions and, and financial well-being and financial literacy and just wealth management in general? What was the challenge that you saw inside the clubhouse that maybe some of us don't see? I think the challenge is just inherently that you're coming from a background that you know nothing. If you think about the average American, their peak earning years are going to be somewhere between what's called 45 and 60. So realistically, they've had 20 to 30 years, two to three decades to make financial mistakes, stub their toe, learn lessons, learn maybe I shouldn't have bought that thing, but I did buy it. 
but it didn't ruin me because my my peak earning years were sometime in the future versus an athlete my peak earning years were from 18 to 25 years old and if i made big financial mistakes then there was no going back to do it over again i wasn't going to have the same opportunity to make that level of money and income and it's this double-edged sword because as a athlete if you're getting the money at such a young age we all know the power of compounding right if we just assume money's going to double every 10 years with solid investment returns it's pretty easy to do the math you know you invest a million bucks it grows to be worth two then four then eight then 16 but on the flip side of that if you blow it you don't do the right things on the upfront you can't go back and earn that same millions of dollars mm-hmm yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. I never really thought about the difference in peak earning years and the benefit of the you know having the peak earning years later in life because you can make the mistakes and and by the time you get later in life, you're also closer and closer to retirement, so that it doesn't seem as drastic and far away. So you make different psychological decisions, cognitive decisions, as well. And, and this question I'm going to ask, I'm going to tailor it more towards athletes, but I think it can be tailored towards anybody. Is I'm curious how you cracked the nut to help them understand that they need to take action today. Especially like when you said 18 to 25, the idea of putting money away and saving money is so hard. And I had many conversations, as I as I mentioned, like we tried to serve athletes. That just was not our niche. But we had conversations with them and it was just a it was a hard conversation to help them understand that you can't go and live this life and have three houses, a house at your spring training and house at your your hometown and a house at where your big league team is and live all that life because of your signing bonus. Like we need to save it. It's very difficult to get that through. I'm curious how you've been able to help athletes overcome that hurdle, which is just a human instinct, but I'm going to tailor towards baseball players or athletes in general right now. The first thing that has been helpful for me is that I just share openly my own experiences, especially with the guys that we work with. I'll happily share exactly what my financial situation looked like when I played and what it looks like today. And I do that because what I'm trying to articulate to them is my outcome was what I would classify as a bottom 20% career outcome. I was a top 10 draft pick. If you look at guys that are top 10 draft picks that go on to become top 10 prospects in all baseball, we're talking a laundry list of people that have made 50 plus, 100 plus millions of dollars, right? My career did not go the way that some of those folks went. I was, so I would I, I classify it as a bottom 20% career outcome. But what I tell guys is, although there was a lot of things that were outside of my control that led to this outcome, from a financial perspective, I felt like it was a top 5% outcome. Because the reality is in professional sports, there's going to be so many things that are going to be outside of your control. But the one thing that can be totally inside of your control is what do you do with your money? And when you show somebody that picture and you frame up that in their mind of, if I make this money in the draft and I never make another dollar in baseball, and this is the number that I could potentially retire from the game with at, let's call it 30, if I just do all these things that are totally inside of my control, that's a pretty good outcome. And it's pretty advantageous for a guy to want to take that route. But that requires educating them. And I think for me, I educate them by sharing stories that have happened in my own career. I, I think that something you said there, especially at the end right there with stories from yourself and your own career, there, there's this there's this power in relatability, right? I think that that's where, why you're successful and why I wasn't. I can only talk about high school baseball where I didn't earn any money and they are talking about pro baseball when they got, you know, million dollar, a couple million dollar signing bonus. There's this relatability aspect and a vulnerability, right? You have the vulnerability of sharing your story and that really resonates with them. And 
I'm curious on the side of these these individuals, just like yourself, got to the big leagues through this discipline, this really focused determination that was so keenly on one thing, being the best potential baseball player that you could be. And now you've got money, and that's not really your skill set. But that mentality can translate over into success within financial management. How have you helped individuals harness that kind of drive that got them so successful at at the peak of, of something that's so difficult to then also doing something that is tends to be difficult for many humans, which is sticking true and building a financial plan? How have you helped them harness that mindset and put the power towards wealth management? I think a lot of it stems from one thing, and it's just discipline, right? If you're a top performer, if you are a professional athlete, if you're really good at personal finance, the tie-in between all three of those things is that you have some level of discipline. You have some level to say that I'm going to either delay gratification or I'm willing to do these things for a really long period of time because I know if I do that, the outcome in the end is going to be really good, even on the days that I don't want to do it. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then I think the second thing is Again, it's just going back and saying, how can we take the skills that you have and tell stories in a way and educate you in a way that you want to be engaged in this process? A common misconception that I hear is that, oh, well, athletes, they don't, they're not, they don't care what's going on. And I would tell anybody, if somebody walked down the street and took a hundred bucks out of your pocket, would you care? And every single person in America would say, yeah, I would care. And I think that's the same thing that athletes feel, but they just don't know what questions to ask. And then they don't want to be in a room with somebody that's talking over their head. So what our goal is with all the clients we work with is, and I tell them this, this is a done with you process. This is not a done for you process. And the difference there is the reason why it's a done with you process is I do not want you to get done playing baseball or playing whatever sports you're playing and be 30 plus years old and not know how to pay a credit card bill and not understand some of the basics of personal finance. So we try to use every time that we have a communication with a client to be able to teach them something new about their personal financial life. I love the done with you aspect. And I think that's also, you know, how I envision that is that it's also kind of like a training tool, not to only become financial well-being, but like, you know, you got to think about post baseball because it's not going to last forever. That is kind of a profession that, you know, is going to have an end date early in your life where you still have a lot of life to live. So I, I think that that's really empowering. As you transition from baseball, and I think this will be good for a lot of advisors out there that are entrepreneurial or thinking about taking the entrepreneurial leap, you know, as you transition from the structure of baseball, there was structure of you knew that you had you had to train this way, you had your offseason, et cetera, to then entrepreneurship and startup world of starting your own business. What challenges did you find that you had to overcome? as you made that transition? Because I've seen that athletes have some transition difficulty going from athletics to the professional world because there's a lot more kind of white space out there. Three things come to mind for me, Matt. The first one being the transition from the locker room to a more professional corporate setting, if you want to say, is different than most people realize. If you're in a locker room, you're typically there with a bunch of guys that are relatively type A, and if we don't like each other, or we didn't get along that day, you might say something that you don't really mean. And 30 seconds later, we could all agree that we're just going to get over it and move on. And nobody's really going to hold a grudge because that's just the way the locker room works. There's good natured rubbing, all those things. That level of uh, brashness, so to speak, does not work in quote unquote real life. So that's one. 
The second thing is you're coming from a world where even for me, I was not the best player on the team, but I was still a professional athlete. I still finished my career making millions of dollars. There was some level of ego there. And you really got to check your ego at the door because you're really starting from ground zero again. And you have to understand that. Yes, you have some skills that you learn playing baseball. Yes, there's things that are going to translate. But the reality is you need to humble yourself and start from ground zero again. And the third thing is something that I think you touched on. In sports and athletics, you have all of this structure. You go to the field, and yes, you're you're kind of doing things on your own, but they're telling you that stretch is at this time, the game is going to be at this time, when we have a road trip, you need to be on the bus or the plane at this time. Especially when you go into the entrepreneurship world, there's all this white space. You have all this freedom to do whatever you want to do. So creating structure around the days that you have to one, determine like, what are the highest and best use of my time? And what should I be focusing on? How should I be spending that? How should I be playing that out? Because I don't have anybody giving me a framework anymore or a schedule that I should be going off of. How did you, how how did you overcome that third one? I want to go to the second one as well, because I'm really curious on the ego side, because I think that there's something I want to talk about in terms of our industry and, and how you made that transition. But with the structure side, because I think that some people some athletes that I've talked to say, you know, I love the freedom. Like, I don't want to go back to that structure. It was like so structured. And then they don't, they don't know how to build the structure because they're like, they're worried about going back to what was so structured. And then others just don't even know where to start. So when you think about building structure in terms of your focus of building a business, this isn't just like going and doing a job. This is literally building a business where you have to start without much background because you're a professional athlete for most of your life. How did you overcome that as you started building building the business? Well, it's been a it's been a gradual process, but the the quote that I always go back to, or the framework that I always go back to, is we all have the same twenty four hours in a day. I think there's this misconception in America, especially that you know we we talk about the nine to five, right? People go to work from nine to five, and one of the things I learned when I first started working in this industry, so I I took a job for about six months where I essentially was not worried at all about making any money. I just wanted to learn skills. And it was at a multifamily office that did really quality work. But one of the things that always came to mind for me was it might be like one o'clock on a Tuesday and all the work would, so to speak, be done for the day, but everybody was still going to be there till five. And I always thought like, why is everybody still here if all the work's done? And I have really focused on saying, what is the most efficient use of my time? Okay. So I'll use an example. One thing that I do that is a a rock for me in terms of filling up my jar with rocks first and sand second is my health. So I wake up in the morning and nearly every single day I will walk outside for 45 minutes before my kids wake up. It gives me a good time to think. It gives me a good time to process, to reset, to come up with content that I'm going to potentially write that day. Then I take my kids to school and then I go work out. So those are non-negotiables. I do those literally every single day, rain, shine, no matter what. And I know that if I do those things, my health is going to be prioritized. And then usually the next thing I do is do something around either client work or creating content where I'm helping to either educate the individuals that I'm working with currently or educate other people that are out there. Now, that traditional schedule for me doesn't mean that I'm in the office from nine to five. It means that I'm doing the things that are the most important to move the business forward and move my life forward. But it's taken me a long time to get over the fact that like, it's okay if I'm at the gym at nine o'clock and everybody else is at work. Yeah, I think that that's a mentality of that stems from confidence that stems from 
identifying what your true purpose is and what you value in life, right? And if you can't do that, then you're not doing the right thing and, and you've identified a way to make that all happen. And, and then I, I'm curious on the side of, with regards to ego, I think that that's a hard one. And I think that in our industry, you know, there, I think that there's a lot of people that have ego. I think in any industry, not just our industry. And you kind of went from one industry and then had to start over and you had to do this transition. What are some things to for some individuals that may want to figure out how to check their ego or, or back down their ego that allowed you to go from this, you know, somewhat of an ego, rightfully so, by the way, yep. to to having to kind of put that at the door and say, you know what? I'm okay not knowing everything. How did I'm just curious about that, like kind of bridging to that area, because that's really hard to do going from anything. Well, I'm a lifelong learner. And one thing I've learned as I've continued to try to educate myself is that the more I know, the more I realize I either don't know today or I definitely didn't know five or 10 years ago. So for me, I learned a lot of times the hard way in terms of I learned something and then I realized, wow, I've been doing it wrong this entire time whether it's communication, whether it's something strategically, I'm always trying to learn something new. So a lot of my experiences in terms of checking my ego have been more like slaps in the face where you can't miss it. You're saying like, I had an ego around this and now I'm realizing that I should not have an ego around this. I can remember a guy who's a mentor for me, had a business and we were talking about, I think he was talking about employee compensation and I was kind of talking about my situation and you know, he's like, I, I think the, the guy that runs your company is doing it the exact right way. And I was like, what do you mean? No, let me explain. And now I look back on that conversation and he was a hundred percent right. And I didn't know what I didn't know, but I felt like, okay, well, I'm, I'm relatively astute in this. Like I'm adding a lot of value. So like it should equate to this. And it's just me constantly trying to learn and iterate and understand that I don't have this all figured out. I will never have this all figured out. Nobody has this all figured out. I think has helped me to make quick transitions when I realize I'm wrong. Yeah, I love that idea. And that, you know, two things come to mind from what you were talking about with structure and then also with ego. The one on structure is this quote from Shane Parrish, who runs a blog called Farnham Street. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say it perfectly, but basically in his book, Clear Thinking, he talks about this concept of everybody looks at all these people that are doing things so well and just think that they like, they just got it all together. But what they don't see under there is like a very rigid structure. Like they are doing things like with intention and and continuously every single day. And that structure creates what is outside seen. And it's not just this like, they're just like good and they just know what they're doing. What you see is not truly what's being done to get to that point. I think that, you know, that's also something I learned in the technology world, building a technology company was I tried to just replicate another company. And what I realized is what I'm seeing on the front end is lifelong lessons in the back end of continuous things that I had no clue about. And I don't learn it until I get into it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so far behind uh, on yep. that side. And then the second, uh, the second point is this natural inclination to curiosity. That's something that I've learned from a lot of really successful leaders is that being naturally curious is extremely impactful and understanding kind of that you don't know everything. I, you know, your story reminded me of this stupid reality show that was on TV once and I was watching it. And like the person was like an 18 year old kid and he was talking to his mom and basically like, Hey, I needed you two years ago, but now I'm good. I don't need a mom to parent me because I, I know everything. And I'm like, 
this kid's so far from the truth. Like, yeah, you always need a parent to parent you, right? And that that is the type of ego. If you can lessen that and say, I don't know everything and I'm okay to learn from other people, even subordinates and younger people, you're going to be better off. I, I want to transition real quick to something that you're, you kind of alluded to. It's all around building your brand from a marketing standpoint. You mentioned that you write a lot of content. I'm curious about the strategy because I, I could see some people saying, you know, Jacob's got it easy. Like he played in the league. He's got connections in the league. Like he can just go to the league and get connections to other players. And like, it's easy. He's got it easy. Let's set the story straight. It's probably not easy. So what is the strategy that you're using to market your services and and get clients? And it sounds like content is one of them. I'm curious how you go about the the whole strategy. Yeah. Well, let me first by saying that nothing that people want in life is easy. And people reach out to me all the time and ask about working in sports or working with athletes. And I, I just tell them the same thing, that it will take longer than you think, it will cost more money than you think, and you have to be prepared to fly around the country. So if you want to check all those boxes, then like I think you should potentially explore it. But the reality is I do have a ton of connections in sports to a lot of different people in sports, and it's not easy. So let me say that first. The second thing is the reason why I do the content is because it allows me to try to educate people that I can't work with. I'm not going to work with every single individual out there. And it allows me to do that. The second part of the content is when I went through the process as even a professional athlete, specifically, my parents were looking for good information and it's really hard to figure out, you know, this person's telling me one thing, but there's also this agenda here because they want me to work with them. When I produce content, you can read it for free. Nothing's behind a paywall. You're welcome to comment on it, like on it, send me a message about it. I might respond to it. And it gives people this open resource of, this is my opinions. This is my knowledge base. And I'm going to take it and, and put it out there into the world for you. And if you don't like it, great. You don't have to follow me. But if you do like it, hopefully you're getting something out of it. Well, I, I want to dive onto that for a second, right? Content, I think, is is one of the the hottest topics that that advisors are starting to try to explore to to build their thought leadership and to attract leader or attract clients etc but there has to be this like differentiation in the content what what have you found to be successful within your content strategy in terms of an approach to helping get readership to help get interest whatever it may be what have you learned in that journey wow that's a loaded question because i've learned a lot i started by <laughs> the top having two really I've really never written content online outside of the past almost two years now. So I was starting from nothing. I've always loved writing. I've always loved talking to people, but I've never really put myself out there and shared the types of things I've shared over the last two years. And the thing that I've learned is much to your point, Matt, there's information that's out there if, via Google, right? If you want to learn any basic personal finance concept, you can Google it and there'll be 10 articles in the first page that are well-written that will outline it to you. And if you want a video format, you can go to YouTube and do it too. The thing I think that differentiates people in creating content is earned experience. When you start sharing earned experience, experiences that you've actually gone through yourself, and not only do you walk through that same strategy that you could find on the first page of Google, but now you connect it to how you're actually using it in your life or maybe how you're using it in a client's life. Now, all of a sudden that story becomes really real because the guy that owns a business. And when I talk about something I'm doing in my business, to maybe save money in taxes, he's like, well, I, I kind of feel like I'm in that same situation as opposed to just randomly talking about a tax strategy. Yeah. Earned experience is, is truly there. And it's got to be 
you know, I think it's got to be authentic to your point that we talked about earlier. It's got to be vulnerable, how you're talking to clients. And it's got to be, you know, a little bit deeper than surface level. It's got to have its own unique twist, which is, I think, something that we see there. I, I, I want to shift gears for a second and just kind of ask a random question because I, I'm always curious, especially people that are entering the space that are a little bit newer. You, know, you come from a different background, right? Athlete to, to wealth management. You've been in the business for three years. You've built a great business. You're building a, a sustainable and, and long enduring business. Two questions, and you can take them in whichever order you want. What's the biggest challenge that this industry faces from the other side? Right? You were on the other side of it. Now you're on this side of it, is question one. Then question two is from your perspective, being still fresh and a little naive in the industry, which is phenomenal. Where do you see the future of this industry going from your perspective? And you can take it in whichever order you want. Yeah. On the first question, what do I see as the biggest issue from the other side of the table? So for 10 years, I sat on the other side of the table and I worked with several different financial advisors. The biggest issue I see is trust. When you look out in the marketplace, there's a ton of people parading around as financial advisors that have no interest other than to line their pockets. And that's the truth. It's a really slimy part of an industry that overall does a lot of really good things. Building trust with clients and helping to show them your expertise, I think is really crucial in 2023. And I think it goes back to the content. And then as far as where I see the industry going, I think the industry is going to a place that people don't want to be told what to do. They want to, they want to be shown that this is the way I should do it. When I think of my generation of clients and I think of the clients that we brought in, a lot of the questions are, that sounds great, but why? Okay, tell me a little bit more about that. As opposed to, I think in previous generations, it's been more so, this is what we do. We get to this certain stage of our life and we hire a financial advisor. So there's a lot of tie-ins in both of those answers to building a personal brand, in my opinion, creating content and showing the value that you have, not just telling somebody the value that you have. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think what you're building really kind of like doubles down on two major points that we talk about on this podcast a lot. One is have a niche, which you do. It's a very unique niche. You know it well. And then it's two is building a really personal brand. And you do that with your content, with your earned experiences. And so I, I think that people have a lot to learn from you. And you know, I could probably have this conversation for hours, uh, but we're going to kind of be cognizant of people's time and your time and everything of that nature. So I want to wrap up with, you know, two final questions that I always like to ask our, our guests. And, and the first one is, you know, you mentioned that you're a lifelong learner. I am as well. I love to learn by reading. So I'm curious, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read, or if they've already read it, they should reread it. Uh, that's had an impact on your life. Yeah, well, I'll actually give you two. So the best book that I read last year is Psychology Money by Morgan Housel. And I say that because he just came out with a new book, Same as Ever which I'm sure will be just as phenomenal as, as Psychology of Money. But the best book that I've read this year, especially when it comes to wealth, building wealth, how to think about that and how to do it from any standpoint of no matter where you grow up is a book called The, Alvin the Almanac and Naval Ramkot. So Naval is one of the top venture capitalists in the world, one of the best investors of our generation. And this book is really a, a data collection of all of his quotes, thoughts, frameworks around building wealth. And it's been really impactful for me to read that. It's one of those books that you could legitimately open it up to about any section in the book and just start reading at any point in the day and get something out of it. That's incredible. I love that. And I will double down on the psychology of money and I already have his new book on the way as well. So 
Morgan Housel, and his podcast is great too if you want to take some podcasts uh, to listen to. The last question I'll ask is, you know, we talked about a lot here, right? We talked about kind of the transition. We talked about building a business. We talked about branding, content, et cetera. If there's one piece of actionable advice that you hope or that you, you would like for our audience to take away from this conversation, what would that one piece of actionable advice be for them? Yeah, when we talked about a lot of the stuff, we talked about whether it's content, whether it's transitioning out of baseball, whether it's starting a business, all of those things have this tie-in of, well, what could go wrong? That's our normal human reaction. What's the worst thing that could happen? And I would just challenge anybody out there. There's always something that you're thinking about doing. Maybe it's making that first content post. Maybe it's starting a business. Maybe it's transitioning to something new. Just ask yourself, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen? And really sit with that for a second, because a lot of times what the worst thing that could happen is, is not near as bad as what we think it is. We drum it up in our head that, you know, if this thing happens, I'm going to be homeless on the streets tomorrow. And the reality is that's probably not going to happen. So really sit and chew on the fact of if I want to do the thing that I'm thinking about, what's the worst thing that can happen? And ultimately, I hope that leads to potential action towards doing that thing. I love that. That is unbelievable advice and something that you can act on right now if you want to. Jacob Turner, this has been a real, real pleasure, man, and real inspiration. And I know that people are going to want to continue to follow what you're doing and probably get in touch and just kind of stay in touch. What's the best way for people to do so and, and to kind of continue to follow your journey here as you grow your firm? Yeah. I mean, I'm on all the major social media platforms, LinkedIn and Twitter are my two most active platforms right now. I'm also on Instagram and then I'm starting a YouTube channel as well. And then our firm is momentprivatewealth.com, but you can connect with any of those places. Love it. If you haven't done it, go connect with Jacob, but you won't, you won't be disappointed. Jacob, again, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on Bridging the Gap. I, I really appreciate it, man. Matt, thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 